This is the Tattoo Now podcast with a special interview with Gabe Leonard and Chet Zar. I'm just going to let it run in its entirety. Tattoo Now has been helping connect tattoo collectors and the curious with world-class talent from all around the globe since the mid-90s. You are invited to join us as we dive into the heart of tattoo now. I need to let you know about the people that make this show possible. The Rock River Tattoo Art Expo is Guy Ageson's uh, first show. He's the, the vision behind it, and he's partnering with Robert Shaw from Euro Tattoo and from Tattoo Now to bring in some of the influence from the tattoo gatherings and the retreats. And uh, it's going to be a pretty amazing show. TattooArtExpo.com NeedleJigTattooSupply.com is an amazing tattoo supply company that still vets every order. TattooNow.com slash NeedleJig and you'll get 10% off your next order. D-Lies Pro Protect Your Art is a skin wrap meant for healing. So if you are a tattooer and you are trying to find a great way to heal tattoos, D-Lies Pro, otherwise known as Dermalize in the rest of the world, is a great method for you to, ch to check out. It's designed to heal tattoos, made by uh, Alex Tapasse. Alex is also creating mobile apps with Ink Squad. You should go straight to the uh, App Store and check out the Palette Pro app if you are a tattooer. It will help you with your palette selection, your inks, you, you load up images, and it uh, lets you know which inks will, will create that image. All of the major brands are represented. Tattoo studios that you should get tattooed at when they are open again and work at if you're a great tattooer when they're all open again uh, include Super Genius Tattoo in Seattle, led by the legendary Damon Conklin. Uh, no Idols Tattoo in New York City, in the thick of it, Loose Screw Tattoo in Richmond, Virginia. All these shops are run by amazing, honest, progressive tattooers. So hit them up and then uh, let them know you found out about them on the, uh, on the podcast. ReinventingTheTattoo.com is Guy Aitchison's online subscription to everything that was contained in the book uh, that he started, I think, over well, well over 10 years, maybe even over 20 at this point. It's basically the uh, college textbook on tattooing with new guest chapters and guys making new uh, content and videos all the time. Check it out, ReinventingTheTattoo.com. Uh, and Tattoo Now, since the mid-90s, we've been helping connect tattoo artists and uh, collectors uh, through a variety of methods, uh, through multimedia promotion, through business consulting. We could help you not only build up your tattoo studios, but uh, understand how to protect it properly and not screw it up. Um, we have uh, tons of webinars, uh, help recruiting with tattooers looking for great spots and for studios looking for great artists management at tattoonow.com or 413-585-9134. Okay, here is the long-form interview with Gabe Leonard and Chet Zar. I'm really excited to be talking with our next guests. They're both awesome, and together, it's one of the, some of the parts is worth even more. Uh, I'm a, it's going to be an amazing talk. Uh, met them both uh, years ago at uh, various tattoo and art uh, events. And ultimately, there was, a, I believe, a road trip out to a New Mexico Paradise Artist Retreat that I got to really hang out and uh, see them influence the tattoo world in, a, in exceptionally positive ways. Um, I've read on the internet that uh, they are worth uh, eight figures. <clears throat> Thank you. Thank you Thank for you. reading my press releases. <laughs> ah, awesome. Well written. Um, 
So yeah, uh, Chet's got four, a, a fantastic four million, four point five million I'm worth, I believe. Come in. I believe it was four point five million that it said it was worth. <laughs> and, uh, well, but uh, again, spiritually worth nine figures, uh, and uh, uh, as far as positive influence on the world goes. So, so Chet, you want to tell us a little bit about your podcast and uh, just to give this a start? Sure. Uh, a couple years ago, or not quite two years, over a year though, um, I started a podcast called the Dark Art Society Podcast with Mike Carell, the guy who directed the documentary about me called Chet Zar, I Like to Paint Monsters, um, just because we would talk on the phone and bullshit from time to time and it interesting topics came up and i just thought you know we should try recording these and doing a podcast for the hell of it um and the idea was just to use it as a vehicle to help promote dark art as a legitimate art movement and you know also help artists how to you know advice for doing prints and running your business and you know just an art basically a podcast for artists and art fans, but we sort of geared it towards dark art because, you know, that's uh, not, it's, you know, it's still kind of becoming, uh, it's it's still seen as kind of not legitimate, I think, by, by the regular art world. Although that's changing. It's changing a lot, actually. Um, that's that's so. how you get along so well with the tattooers, I suppose, huh? Or one of the reasons. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And we've had Paul Booth on there. We've had uh, Tommy Lee Wentner. We've had Nico, Nico Hurtado. Yeah. yeah. So and it, Mike ended up leaving a few months back because he had such a, a big lifestyle change. He sold his house and uh, him and his wife and dogs moved, uh, got an RV and just are living on the road now. So he quit the podcast. And so now that I'm doing it alone, it's all artist interviews. So, um, yeah, yeah it's Brahm on recently and also yeah we had Brahm on and um had Gabe's been on before and oh. uh uh just did Harley Brown who's like this 80 year old traditional portrait artist who's really great he's got a couple of amazing books he's he's um created and um that was kind of cool so yeah we have all kinds of different artists but again everything's kind of focused on dark art because it's all about advocating for that movement pretty much you know awesome yeah so and uh, you guys have a a, a, a long uh, epic uh, origin story with gabe uh, in there but uh, maybe if um you know for the for the sake of having this conversation again if uh, i don't know maybe tell a, a short story a little bit about how you got into making art as a as a living and, and supporting yourself with it um and then i don't know if you could poke each other a little bit to make it a, a little bit le- more mm. interesting than the normal <laughs> doink, doink. <laughs> <laughs> you start gabe you, you got a good origin um, story <laughs> uh, how far back should I go? Uh, well, I was born and raised. In... <laughs> I, mean, I started the Bing Bang. <laughs> <laughs> Turns out it happened in 1976. <laughs> uh, yeah, I was. Shit, I remember writing in... 1976 on my school paper. Yeah, I know, Dad. <laughs> <laughs> Gramps. Grandpa. <laughs> uh, yeah, I was, I was born and raised in Wyoming. Uh, I kind of had a knack for drawing and painting at an early age. It was something I was good at from the beginning, I guess. Uh, people uh, around me thought I was good, and I 
was encouraged to do it, so I kept on doing it. I eventually decided I would pursue it as a career to get a job. I was going originally going to try to get into animation industry where I thought I could probably get a real job uh, making a living as an artist. So I went to art school in Columbus, Ohio, the Columbus College of Art and Design, and I graduated there in 1998. And I moved out to Los Angeles after that to pursue a career in background painting. I discovered I loved painting, and so that's what I was came out here to do. I quickly found out that all the traditional uh, animation was being taken over by digital animation, and I didn't have a computer or any really desire to go back to school uh, since I already had enough student loan debt. Uh, so I was you working didn't have any part- money either, right? No, I, had, I got to LA. I had $1,900 to my name. And uh, so I got it. The first job I could get was at Macy's folding shirts for seasonal help, um, <laughs> and which didn't pay hardly anything. So I was looking for any other so- sort of side hustle or a better job. And I was down on the port- shirts. Yeah. Yeah, I was folding shirts in the men's department, which was really kind of humiliating. People would just come in, just throw everything everywhere, and then you'd fold it all back nice and neat, and then somebody come in and just throw everything everywhere. And, <laughs> and like, yeah, this is this is a mic. This is this is me. <laughs> <laughs> the upside so is was, he's a badass uh, shirt folder now. I'm sure. <laughs> no, I did start folding my laundry like that for a long time because I got really good at folding laundry. Like my laundry, my my closet, my my dressers just look like they, they, they were awesome but uh, I don't put that much time into that anymore I found better things to do I suppose but uh, so I it, yeah I was trying to find whatever money I can make until I got a, a real job you know at the uh, studios uh, so I was at the boardwalk one day I saw some artists out there selling artwork and uh, it kind of occurred to me that they wouldn't be out there if they weren't making money and they weren't necessarily that great. So if they could do it, maybe I could do it too, you know? And, uh, so I figured out that you didn't have to buy a license because I couldn't afford to pay a permit or anything. So they just had to be the artist selling your artwork. So I went out there with my college portfolio of, of landscapes and illustrations, just like color copies from Kinko's and some of my landscape paintings that I had. And I laid it out on the ground and started to try to hustle it. And the first day I made like nine, What's that? This is the Venice Beach uh, Boardwalk. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. Cool. The first day I made like nine bucks. You know, I but I paid six dollars to park, so you know it wasn't that profitable. But I <laughs> like I needed every dollar I could make, so I kept going back, and I'd make thirty or forty bucks selling color copies. People weren't buying; they weren't spending a hundred bucks on original art, but they'd spend ten dollars on a color copy from Kinkos. <laughs> so that's what I started doing. All my paintings then had to fit on a scan bed at Kinkos. And uh, as the spring wore on, it got better and better. And then for a couple of weekends, I made like a couple hundred bucks each weekend. And I was more than I was making at Macy's all week. And so I was like, man, if I could do that and Macy's, I, you know, I'd be making some decent money. So I went to talk to my manager. And she wouldn't give me the weekends off because I didn't, I wasn't working full time. And she wouldn't give me full time hours. So I quit. And that was the last job I had in 1999. And, and I started selling my art full time on the boardwalk. And that was right before Memorial Day weekend. And I'm like, man, I'm going to I'm gonna do well. It's like the summer's coming up. All the tourists are showing up. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kill it. And so the, the Saturday I go out there on Memorial Day weekend, I go to set up where I'd been setting up. And I get a, I almost get in a fist fight with a couple of jewelers and psychics. And they were ganging up on me. <laughs> and, 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 it, and I realized it's ferocious out there. It's like, so I, I walked. I just I had to leave. I was like, I'm a big dude. But I was like, I wasn't there to get in a fight, right? 
So I walked up the boardwalk as far as I, I walked past where nobody was setting up all the way up to the north side of the boardwalk. And I set up where nobody was at and uh, started selling my art there. And uh, it wasn't long before the, the boardwalk got so competitive and busy that there was just people were fighting over all the space on the boardwalk. And I was dealing with guys balancing stoves on their chins. I was dealing with homeless guys setting up sand mermaids, yelling obscenities at everybody who didn't tip them all day long. Uh, you know, people just doing all kinds of crazy stuff. And there was all kinds of henna tattoo booths. At one point there was like 55 different Chinese massage tables down there. Like, so they were, you were just really competitive for space. So I started getting there earlier and earlier. And before too long, I was sleeping in my truck overnight the night before to get, get to get a space, just to stick out of space. And so there, it went from being kind of fun selling your art on the boardwalk to a lot, a lot of anxiety. Like I dreaded the weekends. It was like I didn't know if I was going to fight someone. I didn't know if I was going to get there when the space was all gone. Uh, the city was changing their ordinances to deal with all the fights that were going on down there. And the people that lived down there were complaining about all the noise. And so they were changing the ordinances to get rid of street vending. But they wanted to keep the artists. But the way they were writing it was making it almost impossible. They were... They ended up uh, passing a lottery system that uh, basically reduced all the spaces to how much space you could set up in. But then they were set up in such a way that they reduced the amount of people that could be down there at one time. And uh, there were there were people that would uh, group up together. There were some Latino families there that had like these little things that they made, and they would get like 30 people in their family to go and join this lottery and get five or ten spaces and then sell them or give them to their friends. And I went, and the first time, first two times that system happened, I didn't get a space. So what I started doing was just breaking a law. I just set up anyways. I almost got arrested a few times. Uh, I found out that the city didn't really want to enforce it because they didn't want to be sued for First Amendment violations. And once I found that out, I just set up wherever I felt like setting up. And I kept doing that, but all this time I was realizing that I had to get out of there. It was, uh, it, it was, Good place to start, but I could see that it could get to a point where if that wasn't there and they, they got rid of that altogether, I would kind of be caught with my pants down around my ankles. Like, so I started finding other venues to go to, and which included street festivals and art art shows and music festivals and things like that. I went to college campuses and rented spaces for the, in their flea markets for to sell little prints to college students for their dorms. And uh, so, yes, and I, I kept doing that. And then... Uh, one day, I guess I'm just going to go through this whole story. <laughs> and, this is, and this is all yeah. original art, right? This is you're not doing copies. Yeah, I was selling, I was selling originals and color copies. Eventually, what I did is I started making these things work. Is that I I got a loan from Apple Computer, bought my own computer, my own printer and scanner, and started making my own prints. So I cut Kinkos out of the loop, and uh, I started. And then I bought it, bought a bigger printer because people kept on asking for bigger prints than eight and a half by eleven. And then they kept on asking for bigger prints than that. So I, I did a, a freelance gig that I didn't really want to do, mainly because it I couldn't see how I could take that specific. It was such a specific job that I couldn't really make prints of it. It was like out, out of my wheelhouse, sort of. And so I did that job and then was able to get a get enough money to get a deposit on this big printer, which I could print 18 by 24 and 24 by 36-inch paper prints. <clears throat> so I was continuously developing, reinvesting money back into my equipment, and bought. You know, I got a, you know, borrowed some money from my grandma. She helped me buy a little bit bigger of a vehicle, like a Nissan Pathfinder, so I could bring bigger art down there, more, more, uh, bigger displays and stuff. And then I started traveling, so I could do these and you know, get a pop-up tent and all this other stuff. 
so I, I was starting to grow. Uh, and then one of, well, one of the venues I, I ended up doing was down on Huntington Beach. It was right along the uh, Pacific Coast Highway and uh, right at the end of the pier. And one day a couple of Lamborghinis pulled up and they were sitting there idling. I'm like, man, those, those, those are cool. Man. I mean, then it occurred to me, people in Lamborghinis don't sell shit out of tents. <laughs> and so <laughs> like, I got to get out of tents. So I got off the ground. I got out of Venice. I mean, I was still going back there, but not as frequently as I, as I was. But if I really wanted to do something more than what I was doing, I had to get out of a tent. Uh, and I had heard of uh, artists getting big breaks at a trade show in New York called the New York, New York Art Expo. And it was like a trade show for galleries and artists and art dealers. And so I maxed out my credit cards. I borrowed money from friends and family. And I had everything I could. And I got at a booth in 2005 at the New York Art Expo. And uh, I did that show. And I made less money at that show than I did in Venice Beach the weekend before. I didn't even have enough money to ship my work back to me. So I carried as much artwork as I could under my arms onto the plane and went back to Venice the next week and started selling whatever I could sell again and made enough money to turn my power back on. Well, my power wasn't turned off, I don't think, but I had utilities about right off my power. I, I, I couldn't cover my rent. I, my phone was getting turned off, but I got my artwork shipped back to me so I could sell more of it down the boardwalk and make, you know, kind of climb out of this hole that I was in. And, um, and then, uh, I started to change what I was doing with my art a little bit. I was up at that point. I was doing a lot of fantasy artwork and, uh, I had switched from doing a mixed media of acrylics and colored pencils into oil paints because I liked the immediacy of it. So there's a few other things that transitioned during this time too, with my tech, my techniques and things. And I decided I was going to stop doing, uh, the fantasy work. And I decided I would do something like completely different. So I was interested in American history and I grew up in Wyoming, so I thought, what if I did like paintings of, of like American outlaws that look like the roughnecks that I grew up with and I was raised by, and you know, kind of like bikers, you know, that kind of thing. And so I started doing that, and and they became pretty successful. People really loved them, and and at that around that same time, I also discovered how I could take my large format printers and print directly onto canvas and make canvas prints and limited editions that way, and my sales kind of doubled. Right, right about that time, and it allowed me to travel farther away. So I started going just out, not not only in California, but to Arizona, Texas, and all the way over to Florida, and bought bigger and bigger vehicles to carry more and more art. And uh, I did that from about 2007 to 2012. And as I was doing all this, I was building a, a bigger audience for my work. I was developing a following in all these different locations. How, you I ended up. Uh, what's that? How did you keep uh, track of your uh, clients? Uh, I would keep coming back, and I would give them cards that had my website on it, and they would order. So a lot of it was just through my website at the time. Uh, we had MySpace back back then, <laughs> and then <laughs> Facebook came on right around 2009. So I was, but it wasn't that people weren't on their phones as much as they are now. In fact, like so, I I kind of transitioned out of the out. Of, so I used all of that as a way to get into into galleries by hiring a, uh, a management team that had connections in the UK and they were able to get me a distribution deal with one of the major distrib distributors there that sold not only to their own network of galleries, but other gallery partners they had. And then I was able to take that as far as the sort of the buzz that was going on with that back to galleries that were in all these locations I sold at festivals and get into the, into galleries in those locations. And so I kind of, and I went to the UK to come back to the US that in that sense. 
and I've been selling through galleries exclusively since 2012. So when I did that, I had to give up everything that I had built up. So I had to quit selling through my website and quit doing festivals and all those sort of things. So I had to give up some sort of amount of control. But the idea was that I was spending uh, an enormous amount of time traveling to sell my artwork and and making art in between things whenever I could. And I, I wanted to focus more on you know, being in my studio, making the art and let other people do all the, all the sales. And so that's, that was the sort of driving force of getting into the gallery scene, uh, inspired by the idea of when I saw those Lamborghinis at the stoplight and I had to kind of backwards engineer, like, well, what a guy that's driving Lamborghinis, you know, like, what would I have to do to drive one of those things? Like, and I just did some math in my head. It's like, well, I I imagine there'd be $5,000 a month for a lease, let's say. And let's say I was going to spend 25% of my income on a car. I'd have to have $20,000 a month. And, and so I thought, well, I can't do that as an individual in a lot of these shows because a lot of them want you to be the artist they're selling your artwork. And so I kind of put that up. But I knew if, if I had 20 locations making me $1,000 a month in print sales, I would be able to get there. So that, that, was, that was the idea of getting into a bunch of different locations. If I could find a way to spread myself out like that, then I could get the Lamborghini, but still don't have a Lamborghini. <laughs> I did get this. I did get a sports car in 2009. I bought a Nissan 370Z and I discovered that you can't drive it any faster than you can in a Nissan Murano. So I ended up selling it a few years later. <laughs> well, you can, but you can't do it legally <laughs> and not in traffic. It doesn't, but, uh, so I, I did kind of live that dream a little bit, but it, I didn't have to spend Five thousand dollars a month on it. Do you guys have a lot of traffic in LA? Or? Oh, you, <laughs> no, not where I'm at. <laughs> it takes about an hour to go, about you know, a tenth of a mile. Yeah, well, you have to you have to start there. Like, well, wherever you have to be, you got to. I got to leave it in an hour, an hour ahead of time. Right, <laughs> just in case. Nice. And so, where does that bring you up to now? So now you're uh, working full time painting. You have uh, galleries yep. representing your work. And- yeah, and then I go do events at the galleries, and and uh, <clears throat> you know there's a whole lot of ins and outs with doing business with galleries too, and some of it's frustrating, but it's pretty rewarding. I I get to spend a lot more time at the studio. It's a lot more. I'm a lot better health, you know. Like I'm not on the road eating shitty food all the time. I can exercise a lot more, uh, so I'm 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 in a lot better position physically, and mentally, I think than I than I was before. Nice, awesome. So uh, so Chet, you were. Uh... You didn't weren't necessarily hustling art on the streets. You went right into the to the movie biz. Was that the, uh, the way your path? Yeah, yeah. I started getting into effects and sculpting and mask making when I was about twelve years old, and um, got kind of bitten by that bug by seeing uh, movies like The Howling, the original, Dawn of the Dead, the Howling, like seventy. You know, 1980, and I got really into effects. And started just building a portfolio on my own and, and realized I wanted to do that for a living. And um, uh, graduated high school, bummed around for about a year and didn't really do anything. And then started showing my portfolio around to different shops because all the shops are, you know, in the Los Angeles area. You know, it's in San Pedro, so it's like, you know, an hour drive, 50, 50 minutes or so. And I got... Effects shops? Yeah, yeah, sorry. Uh, makeup effects shops. And I got hired by a guy named Tony Gardner, and um, he he had some. I was just kind of assisting him 
for a few months on some small projects he had. And then he landed at the, a movie called The Blob, which is a remake of The Blob from the 50s. And that was a real big budget film. And um, I started off doing molds and just grunt work, sort of. And then eventually they saw that I could airbrush pretty well. So I ended up um, actually, by the end of it, I had sculpted a f- couple of characters art directed a couple of characters and painted pretty much everything, just about everything on the show. Uh, we were actually blob victims. The sh- it was a big shop in Hollywood, uh, off Hollywood Boulevard. And half of it was blob effects and the other half was blob victims. Mm-hmm. And so we were, we were on the victim side. So um, that was kind of the big first film I, uh, we ever did. And then um, he got How Dark Man. How old were you when you did that? Um, 86, so... 19 or 20 or something somewhere around there actually before that i got it actually no i I, after i think before tony hired me i got a job at a place called mmi for a guy named john beekler and uh, he did all kinds of like low budget horror movies uh full moon is the production company charlie band i don't know if you're into weird bad movies crappy horror sci-fi you would know the name um, and I went to Italy, worked for that. And that was when I was about 18. I went to Italy. I'd never even been on a plane before. My first flight is, my first trip on a plane was to Italy to work on this movie for a few months. So that was pretty cool. Um, uh, kind of dropped in the deep end there. And um, so I then worked on the blob. Then he started a, like a proper shop um, and called Alterian Studios where he did, he got, um, Dark Man was kind of the first big job, and uh, Adam's Family, Adam's Family Values, Army of Darkness, Swamp Thing cable TV series, all kinds of movies. So I worked there for about 10 years, and then we had a falling out, and then I ended up trying to start. I got into digital right at the end, end of the effects. I started getting into digital. Tried to start a little digital effects company, did a couple small projects, but it didn't really stick and i ran out of money and then my friend bill sturgeon who had worked with it um for tony said that rick bakers was hiring he had a position that he could get my foot in the door there that i was overqualified for but it would be a good way to get my foot in there and it was just painting production painting for the grinch that movie the grinch where it was like airbrushing rubber ears rubber prosthetic ears like hundreds of ears like paint a flesh tone, paint some pink on there. That's it. It's like assembly line. And I, and then I eventually, um, Rick let, uh, saw my work eventually. And I, I, and I moved up into the sculpting department where I worked on, uh, planet of the apes and haunted mansion and a bunch of Hellboy, the Hellboy film. Um, and worked there for about five years. And right around that time I started thinking, I started getting, I was working next to this guy named Mitch Devane, who's amazing, one of probably the best sculptor in the business, and uh, he was really cynical about that makeup effects business, and um, so it was kind of rubbing off on me because he was he was always complaining about <laughs> all the you know the negative aspects of being art directed, and you know he he had this saying he would always say you always you try you work in a film and you try and put your best foot forward, and a pr- producer comes over and steps on it. That was like his saying, but uh, he was always just complaining, and and it's and it got me thinking about this. You know, the the now that I'm in the business, it's not. 
I don't know, the thrill was had worn off and the higher up you got in the business and the better the films, the more designed by committee it was where you'd have a bunch of people from production come in and pick apart your design and ultimately 99% of the time make it worse than it was before you presented it. And so then I found myself often in the position position of trying to fight to make their movie better and they're fighting me to make it worse. <laughs> like as far as like how something works and that just that like messes with your head, you know, because you're like why am I getting all upset? about this you know it's their movie's gonna suffer from the making the design weaker so anyway there was a lot of things like that politics and stuff like that the people in the business the people i worked with were really cool but overall i just wasn't feeling satisfied creatively and so i started considering um starting to get into fine art and then i i um for i was going to be a sculptor and i sculpted this sculpture on my lunch break at rick's it took about a year on it really detailed the sculpture of a cat he's going like this sculpture called soft spot and it's just super real it's got all these you know uh pores and goosebumps and stuff and molded it cast it and then you know realized there's no way i can make a living doing this it's too expensive it takes too much time i took me 10 years to sell the thing eventually it didn't sell right away so uh, i just figured um i've been designing all those years in effects on photoshop and and i'm drawing i always painted and drawn um when i was a kid and stuff so i thought i could i, I should try painting because i can you know f afford to do it and it's cheaper to sell and easier to sell and so i started teaching myself to paint um around 2000 and so i was i started showing it the cannibal flower group shows which is a, a monthly um group show it's in, in la it's a really good place to get your start in the in the fine art world like they're not super picky about who shows there you know and they're not it's it's a huge show and and um the, you know if you're if you bring your art down they'll more than likely put it up unless it's really bad and, um you know they, i think it stopped for a while and i just saw something that there were there were um uh looking for people to show so i think it's back going on again it's been yeah all this time since 2000 and bef before that before i got involved uh, a lot of people i know got their start there didn't you show there before Gabe? yeah i did so, I, actually i did it with them when they first started yeah. did a few shows with them yeah uh, it was hard for me to participate with them because they were always on a saturday and i was always busy selling my art on the boardwalk saturday and sunday well, so that's I the thing like, yeah hang out there late at night yeah. because you had to bring your artwork there and you had to pick it up when the show was over. Yeah, you bring and, it bring Friday, <clears throat> show Saturday, yeah. and then you, have, and then you have to pick it up Sunday. And if you, if you didn't pick it up, it goes to a warehouse somewhere and then you have to hunt, yeah, hunt them down. Been a, so it was, it was, they were fun to do sometimes, but they weren't really, they weren't money makers for me. So I didn't participate in them that much because I was, if I wasn't making money with it, I didn't want to deal with it. Mm -hmm. And uh, but that that did lead into some other galleries like uh, with, with Nathan Cartwright at the Hive and some other yep. things. So there were there were ways to make that work. But, uh, but yeah, yeah I, so yeah, I was involved with them too at the, at the beginning. Yeah, I was at that point. I was taking. I didn't know what to do. I I, I knew um my friend Cam DeLeon, who did who's uh, did work with Tool. He was he had a website. He was selling prints, and I was kind of like, um picking his brain for information and learning how to do print paper prints and stuff and getting a website together. But I was, I didn't really know what to do. So I just kept 
submitting my work for shows and doing any gallery show that would have me any group show and um uh, I was floundering at first. I wasn't making any money. I was still working in the day at, on effects 40 hours a week, and I was painting at night and on the weekends and just submitting to group shows, getting, you know, not, I didn't really have my style. And then I finally kind of settled. I, I, I did a portrait, an, an oval portrait of this monster that was like kind of called Dunce. It's got like a pointed, like a domed head and no eyes, and he had this dumb smile. And that <clears throat> sold immediately at a cannibal flower like right when the show opened and then so they you know they asked me back so i, I did another couple of those uh portrait style uh paintings and those sold right away and so then i think gary from copro bought those two and and uh and then he invited me to put a show on at copro because he was you know he liked the artwork and they were selling so you know, once your work starts selling, then other galleries get interested. Uh, and um, so I just kind of went from there and then started building my online presence, MySpace as well. I had 30,000 followers at one point <laughs> right before it died. I was like, I made it to 30,000 people and then boom, <laughs> and then it died. Um, actually, Gabe, some, I don't know how we hooked up, but Gabe got me, sold me his um, printer. And I, st I started, uh, I j it just died recently too, and I had to get a new one. It's been, you know, that, that was a great printer. But um, so I started doing all my own prints and doing some canvas prints. And just <clears throat> well, you were doing a show at ThinkSpace, I think. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. Uh, you, oh, you were doing we a group yeah. show. You were curating with another person. You asked me if I wanted to put a piece that's in. Right. And I just showed up in my Astro van with a bunch of boxes full of art. And you oh, yeah, yeah. Dropped it off and sped off in a hurry. <laughs> yeah, I that. yeah, yeah. So uh, oh, here you go. I'll be back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I forgot about that. So uh, then around, um, I think it was, I don't know. I I know the La Land of the Lost remake from that TV show was like the last thing I worked. Oh, after after Rick's Rick's Baker's closed down, and then I started working at a place called Spectral Motion. So I worked at Rick's for five years. And I worked at Spectral Motion for another five years. So um, I think it was around 2009 I was able – I got laid off at Spectral. And, and by then I was kind of – I had – I wasn't making as much money doing the artwork as I was in effects. But it was enough to where I was thinking, you know, I'm, I can almost leave if I, if I play my cards right. And then um, they laid you off. The way they do in that business where it's like Wednesday and they say, oh, your last day is Friday after five years of working there. And so um, I, I was. I took that as you know. I could either you know normally what you do in effects, you get laid off, and then you go on unemployment that day. You get laid off, and then you start looking for work. That's what everybody does in effects, and um, you hopefully you find some work, and then try and live off the unemployment. And so I was thinking, well, I could get on unemployment and do the usual thing, or I can, um, you know, try and do this fine art thing full time. And I uh, uh, got an email right around the time I was thinking that that day that I was laid off. Some guy emailed me and said, oh, "I want to buy this painting for thirty five hundred bucks that I just posted." And he said, "I never bought a painting before, but I got this tax return. So how do I buy this painting?" And, and you know, that was a lot of money for me. For I, I think I, yeah, I may have I've, I've sold stuff that price but not 
myself, you know, where I get the full price. It was through a gallery, so I get half of that. So anyway, that I took that as a sign, like, okay, you should do it. There's your sign from the universe or whatever. And so I just didn't, um, I just started trying to, you know, left that Friday and started trying to hustle work and build my online presence and um, started building my MySpace and trying to sell stuff and, you know, and just kept doing that. And here I am. Awesome, fun, fun. So, uh, so you guys have obviously uh, known each other for a while. Could you maybe talk a little bit about what you think makes each other's, what makes each other special? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's the long hair and beard. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I used to have yeah. long hair too. I I used to look like Chuck yeah, and I used to, to look like stunt doubles of each other. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, he used to have long hair and he used to be fat, and, and so he was my he, we were he was my stunt double, and then he got all in shape and cut his hair, and I got fatter, so that kind of ended that. It was good while it lasted. <laughs> now, I'm, now I'm a stunt man. <laughs> yeah, what are, you, so what are, you, are you doing the jujitsu? Is that what I saw? Online? Yeah, yeah. I started doing Brazilian jujitsu back in 2013. So that was the same year that we did the tattoo uh, convention, actually. Uh huh. Oh, cool. Yeah, so I've yeah, been training. That's right. That's right. That was yeah. your big change. That was your, your yeah, that was yeah. Your big so I, yeah, so from that point on, everything changed. I started getting my shit together. Mushrooms. I remember the uh, the fireplace that night. It was very oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Kate Leonard comedy uh, routine. It wouldn't yeah, end. my stand up comedy routines <laughs> in the fire pit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll say what's special about Gabe is um, he, he, he's just he just knows how to paint really well, and it's and you know a lot of people, um, myself included, really I think, are kind of specialize in like you know a certain look or a certain kind of thing, and Gabe just has really uh he paints stuff i don't i don't think i could paint like he painted this that dump this cold dump truck the other day and he paints cars and he paints people doing all the stuff and and street scenes and it's like you know he really just is is very well rounded and he knows what he's doing it's not like you know he's very educated you can kind of paint anything i think and he's got his own recognizable style you know and I, he's able to paint really loose which i love as well and i envy um he's able to just make it look right and not so overworked like a lot of my stuff is you know a little detailed a little more detailed than i might like but um he's great he's he's amazing well, he just i knows. would say that the things that you're dogging about your work is the things i think that are really special about <laughs> what you do like because i'm not really good at getting into details and, and things so like what i like about chet's work especially is well first it's very inventive like so i i to paint cold dump trucks and all these other things, I, I do a lot of background research and get a lot of photographic references that I take and do all these other things so I, I know what they look like. And Chet just kind of like, you know, it pops out of out of nothingness into something cool. And, and there's a lot of really cool, clever, inventive things that he does with, with his characters. Uh, his it, It's really strange because when I look at his work, I it, first of all, I, it, it's humorous to me. So I see the humor in his work and I... And he's a very good painter, and as far as his sensibilities with colors and his ability to create form and structure, like his paintings look, I think because maybe because of his background in sculpture, 
he has a, an innate understanding of structure and form, especially in like human heads and faces and, and things like that. So he makes things look like they're real without having seen the thing that he's painted. So that's, you know, that's a big difference between what we're doing. But I think it's what makes his work really unique is, is it's really hard to make something look that that natural and that alive without having reference of anything outside of your own imagination. So, well, so it's just really good at that sort of thing. That's nice of you to say. Thank you, Gabe. <laughs> awesome, man. No, I appreciate welcome. it. <laughs> you mean Gabe and I are like, you know, it's a mutual admiration society. We're always admiring each other's work, you know. Well, so. Great work. Every time I see it online, it's like, oh, shit, I can't believe uh, it keeps getting better. You know, it's uh, like the world's just kind of, you know, keep expanding and getting a little <laughs> Yeah. yeah. So you guys obviously must know a whole cast of characters of artists out there in L.A. and in the broader art world. Um, you know, and everyone, you know, gets a little wild and crazy and, and with all the shit that's going on, like, so my, my question kind of is, is how, how do you feel about uh, the separation of uh, admiration of art from the artist? Um, is it something where, uh, you know, you hear the story about the musicians or the artists and then... Uh, or the filmmakers, and then it tinges the experience of uh, of that art, or is it, do you get a real separation? Like, I appreciate the art. I don't give a shit what they say when they're drunk at the bar. Well, you mean like, can someone be a villain in one story and a hero in another? Yeah, I suppose. Or uh, mostly, like I said, I, every once in a while I'll hear uh, stories. Like about the Michael just, Jackson thing. Well, maybe I, I never cared about Michael Jackson, so that doesn't hit <laughs> me either, personally. But... but yeah, exactly. <laughs> like you know. Uh, or any number of things where somebody is, you know, like you've liked their TV shows or their movies or things they've created, and all of a sudden you find out they're a piece of shit. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Now, is that, now how, <laughs> how does that work as artists? Like, no you can still you can still like the work. I think I think the work and the, and and the person who makes it. Uh, you don't have to like someone to appreciate what they've done. They can, like, so someone can be a hero in one version of themselves and a and a monster in another. I think that's possible. Like even even in my paintings, and I don't know, maybe Chet thinks this agrees with this too. Is like, I don't really make someone out to be a hero or a villain. They might look like one or the other, but it's always up for the person to decide. Like, yeah. is this person bad or good? I I can't tell. And I I think that we all have that monster inside of us somewhere. And if we don't, we're just lying to ourselves. If we think that we're you know, we're not a monster somewhere. If we couldn't be the, the 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 if we couldn't be the Hitler, you know, every one of us has that capacity within us. Mm. Um, people be people. Be, I don't think people are necessarily inherently good or evil. I think those are things that are probably developed through through the pressures of their environment, like how they were raised, what the experiences they had, uh, all these things. They 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 lead into a a direction of of uh, you know, not to say that people aren't completely responsible, but but things happen to people that f- help form who they are, sure. and they and you're not res- you can't be responsible for everything that happens to you. You know, the question is, are, are we responsible for everything that we do? And then you can get into the questions of do we have free will and all those sort of things. And yeah. Yeah, I, I, lean, <laughs> I lean on the, I lean I lean on the side of that I don't think we do have free will, uh-huh. but I. But to have that, you have to kind of accept that the the term the terming things in the sense of good and evil is just a a way of thinking about things that maybe good and evil don't exist. I mean, we obviously have an experience, and we know what we mean when we say evil. But 
when you try to pin anything like that down, it gets ambiguous and confusing down to the point where is Michael Jackson evil? Well, I don't Maybe to some people and maybe for some parts of his life he was, but that it's doesn't a, mean that his music isn't good or isn't influential or didn't have an impact right. on, on our culture. So it's weird though, because that, you know, uh, it's kind of a conundrum in a way because uh, to say that um, a child molester did all these horrible things to kids isn't bad or evil is, you know, it's, there's not, I don't think there's a clear cut answer, you know, like sympathizing with Hitler or, or any, or a serial or a rapist or a child molester, you know, it's like, on one hand, because I, you know, I I agree with you. Kind of, it's like evil, good and evil are man-made concepts ultimately. And um, but at the same time, we are human beings, so there is some kind of, you know, moral baseline that most people kind of believe. And and it's and it's just like it's it's not an easy it's not an easy cut and dried answer. I don't think you know what I mean. Like, because could say, okay, okay, Michael Jackson, he was just um, product of his environment and blah, blah. He's not evil. He's, he's, you know, he's evil's a man made thing, but he raped kids over, you know, raped children, fucked their whole lives up. All the, all kinds of kids ruined their lives pretty much. People are like suffering now because of it. So, to, it's almost like, disregarding the suffering of the kids to go, Oh, he was just a product of this. And he didn't really, you know, you can't really judge. I'm just saying there's no clear cut answer is all. It's like wiggly. Well, we're trying to balance that scale between is the, is the art that was produced, uh, more significant than the harm that was created. Right. Yeah. You know, it's like that with Woody Allen too. It's like, I love Woody Allen movies and I love (laughs) Roma Polanski movies. And, I'm able to make the separation. I think it's like a personal thing, really. I think it's a personal thing. Everybody kind of has to make that separation. On the other hand, there's a painter that I knew that turned out to be a total scumbag asshole guy in in the scene, and I can't really get into his work anymore because of it. So I think it kind of, but it was like more, I was more personally involved. So that's like, do you help the starving child who's begging on the street? and not help the person who's an Ethiopia on a TV commercial. You know, it's like it's proximity right. to your experience right. really depends on what you're going to do to help someone. So it's just, br- it brings you know, me back to the point. I always say there's no answer. There's no answer for any of it. <laughs> that's just, Wait, that's just an that's easy just out. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's just like, there's no, you know, the, the, the sooner we, I think we admit that there's no clear cut answer for anything. The better, the easier it will be to actually come up with solutions for some of the well, problems. We're, all, we're always trying to de- define what our morality as a individual or a culture is, and you might think of our morality as a way of uh, a way of thinking that allows us to go away from suffering and 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 go towards something better. You know, so it may not be you know some sort of absolute truth, but it might be something that's. Um, there's a there's a lot of intellectual philosophers that talk about this lately. Like you know, if yeah. you guys are familiar with Sam Harris and yeah. Jordan Peterson and those guys, yeah. and so oh they have some Jordan interesting Peterson. insights. 
Yeah. That means so, YouTube's going to tag this, and all of a sudden we're just going to get Jordan Peterson for like the next six months on YouTube. Nah, we're, we're not going to go into all the things he says, but but <laughs> but, uh, but but what they what they seem to argue is is that they argue around the ideas of what morality is and and, and where it comes from and why we have it, and and some people like to argue on the side that we, we it must come from some sort of divinity. Uh, that leads us towards something good, and and others might argue that it's a product of evolution in our experience because it was selected for. That's why it's still here. It's, and so the, the 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 ideas that allowed people to survive longer, at least to reproduction age, tend to survive longer. And so, right. uh, so some of the ideas around morality based on a a ideology, uh, an ideology that is uh, too old and unadaptable like in some western religions have a harder time you know we have a harder time rounding off in and and making those fit our current situations so some other ideologies and philosophies that don't have such a unchangeable story structure that we're allowed to adapt these things and maybe even create new things for things that we have like you know, stories in the Bible aren't going to tell us what to do about looking at our smartphone too much. You know, like that yeah. just wasn't conceivable. But there, you know, you know, is you know, if you want to think about it, like a simple version of morality, it's like it used to be, you know, impolite to have your head on inside or in, in in a theater. And now everybody's got a bright screen to turn on, to checking their text messages, and and they do, and it, it just happens so fast that the 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 rules that we form around these things haven't caught up with it. And so what we're looking at now is like we didn't used to see it as either you were a he or either you were like a, you know, a really a important creator, like a musician or an actor or a movie maker. And your sins were brushed under because your credit was so good. Well, now, now because of our ability to pay attention so closely, we can see that we can see the monster in everybody. And so now we, now we have to figure out, well, do we lump them all in one category? Do we give them all the credit or do we give them all the blame? And, and and maybe maybe we can we have to figure out how to compartmentalize those things so that we're not, you know, you know, like like with Michael Jackson or or those guys, they didn't do this on the good things they didn't do on their own either. They they had people they worked with, they had producers, right. they had friends and family and people that they they rose up to uh, great 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 achievements with the help of everyone around them. And they destroyed people in exactly the same way. Yeah, with the help true. of everybody around them. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it's they did both of those things, and and so should you throw out one or the other or both? I, that's I think where we're at in our society, trying to figure that out. Yeah, it's weird. It's a weird time because everything's changing so fast. You know, everything mm-hmm. is. Um, approaching singularity to where exponentially everything's going just faster and faster and and there's no time to even establish rules anymore until the thing has changed again by the time people like kind of agree on something it's changed again and it's like that's why i think i I think a lot of people are freaking out i think that's why kind of the whole um extremism thing is is happening now because it's something to hold on to during times where there's nothing to hold on to. There's chaos. It's like the, I I think the only way to deal with that situation is to let go is just to completely let go and trust. That's the only thing it's that, or it's hold on to some rigid belief structure that makes you feel better. And, you know, you can see that the, the, the extremists um, are, are dangerous 
and not not doing positive things for humanity you know i think it's a weird time it's it's kind of cool in a way i think we're not living in in our own reality too much too i think we're so caught up with what's going on digitally on our phone we we get so caught up in what's going externally that we have all these stories going on we think we have to make decisions about right but when it comes when it comes down to these kind of things like the the actors and you know musicians they I don't listen to any of their music anyways, and right. I don't know anything about them. And so it has no real impact on me. And and whatever whoever it does, there is we've organized organized our culture and society in such a way that we've delegated responsibility to those that are that you know, so however it's gonna be taken care of in a legal system, there is a system in place to take care of those things that we don't have to individually get involved with every fucking day and make a decision about it. I think that's it causes anxiety. It causes like mm. you got all these things you're thinking about all the time, and if you just turn off your phone, turn off your TV, and sit around with your people in front of you or work on a painting, and, and that's what's right there. That's the only thing you have to really think about is what yeah. am I going to do right now? You don't have to think about all those other things all the time. It's yeah. just going to drive you nuts. Yep, I agree. The, uh, the, the thou shall not use your digital equipment on Sunday. Except to watch this podcast. <laughs> watch podcast or YouTube video if necessary. Got to do so, that. Uh, uh, so speaking to uh, the effect of shit just is moving like fast, and obviously you know n- none of us are, are geezers yet, although we are headed straight towards that territory. I'm uh, pretty much. Um, are there, are there uh, lessons that the you've learned getting stage. old in the in the art world that you might be able to share to uh, some younger people? Maybe either ergonomic, you know, simple ergonomic tips or maybe some mental shifts that uh, you might you be able to prepare people you for? You don't want to ask me about ergonomic tips because my back is so fucked. It's been I'm on like three weeks of a pinched nerve, probably from sitting wrong. So for um, ergonomics, <laughs> I, I suggest paint while you're standing up. I yeah, like to that's, paint and work standing as much I'm gonna as possible. Start, as soon as this pinched nerve is done, I'm, I'm going to start yoga. I'm gonna start walking again, and I'm gonna start yeah. painting standing up. Because I'm I, like, I echo that. Take care of your health, because that's that's the thing that's coming back to bite me the most. Is like I, I'm, my 20s after my late 20s through almost all my 30s, I just like, fuck it, you know, I just let myself go. I didn't give a shit, and I got fat. I ate whatever I wanted, didn't exercise, and, and then I found out I had diabetes and high blood pressure, high cholesterol, and and uh, I had to take care of it. And although I'm a lot better shape now, my body is. Paid, is paying the damage. It's it's it's, t- it's a lot harder for me to recover than than mm-hmm. would have been if I had stayed healthy. Is yeah, it, that you're borrowing your from your future self right. when you don't <laughs> give a shit. Yep. And when you get to be your future self, you get mad at your past self for that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and you'll get there. You you will be your future self one day if you're lucky. You know, donuts and pizza are not worth it. <laughs> <laughs> Not to the extent that I was doing it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was somebody uh, I was talking to was an artist, and he was like, "Man, it was fucked up. Like I did, I did drugs, I did fucking drinking, I fucking was almost it was potatoes that almost fucking killed me." And uh, <laughs> yeah. he was just eating, you know, ten years of all the fucking potatoes, and you know, right. all of a sudden the doctor's like, "You got to cut that shit out." And, yeah. But, uh, yeah. I would say on a, on an uh, artistic level, what I would say to young people, and th- I think the thing I run into the most is that um, young artists they see someone that's successful and they want to 
be successful themselves. And so they start marketing themselves right away. They start putting their stuff out there before they're ready. And I think, you know, I think it's important to really learn the fundamentals of artwork, of creating artwork, because a lot of people just kind of jump in and, uh, and, and I'm, I'm all about jumping in. I mean, I kind of jumped in myself, but um, I, ha- I had a lot of background in, in art from my job and everything. So I, 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 I could draw and paint and stuff to a degree. But, um, you know, I think it's important to, to you know, I, I've, I always used to be very, I still am, I'm very supportive to young artists. Um, but I see a lot of, uh, not enough self-criticism, not enough developing your eye to know what even looks good. Because that's a lot of pro- problems a lot, of, a lot of younger people have is they don't even... They don't even know what looks good. They don't. You got to have a baseline of what good is, and the way you look find out what good is is you look at good artwork, and and that's you know old masters and and just people that know yeah. how to paint. Yeah, you have to have your fundamentals down. Absolutely, it's like I, I say. You know, if you're paint, if you're a painter, hold your artwork. And you're a young painter. Hold your artwork up to a guy like Gabe and say, "Is this as good as Gabe's?" And if it's not, then is it is it good enough to show and then you have to kind of like judge it you have to always be trying to be at least as good as the people that are established that know what they're doing I, I well i think i think that's a little bit maybe a bar too high not not that i'm a bar too oh high, but really like, <laughs> but if you if, what i mean is if you're comparing yourself to other people you might tend to beat yourself up too much but you always want to be yeah. better than where you were like when you the, the, the after you get done with the drawing or paintings like you want to be better than you were last week, last month, or last year, and so you want to always be setting a bar for yourself that's higher in the work, and not worrying about is it successful? Am I selling it enough? Because it took me, first of all, it took me eight years after getting out of art school to come up with my style or my vision. I was all over the place, yeah. And it took me, you know, that long before I started making. I mean, I was making money with it, making a living because I was hustling, but. I didn't start making decent. It took me 12 years before I started making good money with it. You know, like it took it take. It's going to take a long time. Yeah, it's going to take a long and time. So a lot of I think that a lot of young artists have this illusionary idea that they're just going to open up a bunch of, bunch of uh, social media accounts and and start putting it out there. And I think there's something to that, in the sense that I, I didn't have that when I started. There was no platform. I was out in the street. So the so the social media is like the new boardwalk. But everybody can get the, the the admittance to to get on there is very low. Like the, the it's easy to do that, right. and so the ability to stick out in that is very hard. And so what I've discovered is what what worked with selling it and hustling it in the street was I was in person, and so you're having an experience with me, and I was talking to you, and I learned how to talk about my art to other people, to thousands of people. And so if you're going to put it online, you can't just put it up there with your name and a title and the image and then who wants to buy it. You have to you have to engage people in real ways more than just the image of your artwork, which includes uh, videos and stuff. So like I'm, I'm starting to really figure this out. By, I've done all these time lapses since 2007, and I've been putting those back out and talking about the work so the people who are just seeing it online can get up to speed with what I'm doing by seeing me in, a, in more than just a static image, you're seeing me in a video. I started a Twitch channel recently where I'm 
going to start doing a live stream painting and people can watch yeah, me work on paintings too. live. And so I'm, I'm figuring, finding out that what worked all along was the more kind of broadband connection you can have with someone. What I mean by that is like your actual interaction with people, the more connected they are to your work and the more they're going to get out of your work. So they might really like it, but if they can, can, you know, if they're a young artists trying to figure out what you're doing and you can talk to them about like, I, I can, there's all kinds of roadblocks I can tell people to avoid, but they yeah. have to have access to me somehow. And yeah, I have to I, know what they're facing. So like, I totally agree with that. However, I, I think that the younger people do already know a lot of that shit. Like they are doing, playing video games on their Twitch channel and making YouTube videos and stuff. I, I still think that, you know, and, you know, Gabe actually taught me how, the importance of marketing and business. It's like I kind of learned, um, I started learning my, my, the, my, the business stuff from Gabe. Like that was one of the things when we first hung out, I was so impressed with, his knowledge of art as a business and that it's not like a dirty word. It's, it's not a bad thing to make, you know, there's still, still there's that it's going away, but there's still that attitude that like, you know, it's like you're selling out or something, which is just stupid. But, um, um, I, it really inspired me to start learning business after I, I met Gabe. And, um, I think that, I think that more people are younger artists are tending to pay more attention to the marketing, which is great if you have a really great product to sell and it's like you really need to make sure that you, your artwork is up to par i i that's just like a personal thing you could probably still sell it and have it not be up to par because some people do that but well, then um, you have to be really good at marketing <laughs> right right but i mean if you if you respect the craft of painting or sculpting or whatever you're doing you really owe it to the to the the community to to do great work and do your best to do the best work you could do and put the hours and time in because that's how you're going to gain the respect of other artists that you admire and it's by you know putting the hours in there's no way to get to be really good unless you put the time in you know and learn all the shit that you don't want to do and paint the fruit and paint the you know the still lives and do the life drawing practice yeah yeah you have to and and you know i i probably see it more in the dark art world maybe than gabe does because you know we we i was the same way i just want to do monster shit i just want to make cool monster shit you don't want to do all the anatomy study and the life drawing but, but that i had makes you makes you I, better at the monster shit. all that deliberate that, practice of, of other things like that's I've, I've been doing, going out doing landscape paintings i go out I, and do drawings yeah. of buildings and like it comes back it comes back it makes back. you better makes you better yeah. and so um i had you know i people i think look at me and think oh he didn't go to art school he just started doing it and it's like i had you know 20 years of art school and makeup effects yeah. where we do life casts which they do in ateliers or the fancy you know art schools where they're doing they have you have to draw body casts from life and dealing with anatomy and looking through anatomy books and all that stuff was like the best art school you could ever want to go to color theory and stuff like that. That's all, all in effect. So I really, it was like, I did go to a really good art college for like 20 years. So, or 15 years before I started the fine art thing. So I just, that's, that's what I, my big, my big uh, kind of pet peeve is before you start personally, before you start really presenting your work and trying to sell your work, make sure your work is really good, you know, because that stuff's going to be out there forever. And so when you do get good, 
people are going to search your name and there's going to be these terrible paintings coming up along <laughs> well, alongside these really great ones and they're going to be like what the fuck is yeah. this you know this is really <laughs> yeah. do well for you you just you know it's not a it's kind of doing yourself a disservice i think so i kind of sum these this up into three bulletin points when people ask me and, I, and mostly it's one do good work two meet your deadlines and three be easy to work with and if you can kind of do all three of those you're going to have a good chance of getting somewhere with it yeah yeah you, you know it's funny gabe uh i i interviewed that harley brown guy i told you yeah. about have you ever seen his work uh, i don't it. don't know i mean the name doesn't but that doesn't mean anything yeah you'll he's great he's just great um if he, he did a book called eternal harley brown's eternal truths for every artist really great book amazing um but he said it's so funny because i remember you, the thing you always say is like you how did you how did you make it and you said i i didn't have a plan b he yeah, said the exact no backup plan yeah he said the yeah, exact the same plan. thing <laughs> he said he didn't have yeah. a backup whoa shit oh hey look at that harley brown oh screen. yeah cool yeah he's like a classic he does a lot of native american these are all pastel too which is crazy they look like oil paintings but it was so funny. I interviewed him, and he and he said the exact same thing you did. He he kind of went out without a without a plan B, and um, started you know in the fifties and sixties. He was selling his artwork for a dollar from door to door. He got like a peddler's license, and went to door to door and was offering to do people's portraits for a dollar a portrait. Wow. Like in the late fifties, I think early sixties. Isn't that crazy? Nice. Anyway, it's just a little side note. Uh, is there something uh, outside of the art world that? Uh... You guys are passionate about, I don't know, politics. You guys give a shit about anything? Uh, yeah, well, I, like we mentioned before, I train Brazilian jiu-jitsu, so I'm pretty into that. been doing that for almost six years. Uh, been training between two to four days a week. Right now my shoulder's kind of fucked up, so I'm probably not going to go tonight. Uh-huh. But uh, it's 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 an art form. It, it, it You know, I think I would recommend anybody to join some sort of martial arts program. Jiu-jitsu is a lot of fun because there's a lot of grappling and and uh, I like people I train with, but uh, it, it's helped me to become more patient, mm-hmm. calm down, uh, you know, not get suckered into emotional things with people, all that kind of stuff. So it's, yeah, I would I would suggest that. You've uh, you've encouraged <laughs> me. I'm gonna go back to Taekwondo tonight. <laughs> I haven't gone for like six months, and I've just started to get my my shit together. And I'm like, I was gonna go on Monday. Yeah. Today, but, yeah. So. Yeah, I, I prioritize that, so I have an alarm on my phone that goes off when it's time to put the brushes down and start cleaning up and go, go to class. Because if I don't, then I'm like, oh, I'll go tomorrow. Uh, you know, I'm busy right now, so I make it. I have to go. And uh, unless I, you know, even when I'm kind of injured, I still go. I, 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 I shouldn't have went on Monday. My shoulder was kind of hurt and tweaked, and I went and I fucked it up even more. And and then yesterday I was like walking around like. Ugh, uh. <laughs> And now it's starting to feel kind of loose. I'm like, yeah, I might go back to class, but I'm like, no, it's still <laughs> sore. <laughs> so it's like, I, but like, I don't want to take a few days off because then all of a sudden I'm going to go back and uh, be out of shape again. Like, <laughs> get your ass kicked. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, do you yeah. find it? Uh, do you have to be regimented to get out of the house as a you know an artist who doesn't have to like necessarily be anywhere at any given time? No, I I I find ways to get out of out of the studio. Otherwise, I get I get <laughs> cooped up in here too much. Although I have. Taken a page out of Chet's book and started using Amazon Prime a lot more. <laughs> I know. It saves me time. It's a, yeah, it's hard. It's hard not to not to use that for everything. Uh, my thing is, I would say uh, meditation is my a bit probably the biggest thing outside of my 
my artwork that I'm into. I've, I've uh, been doing it for years, and I um, kind of off and on for years, and I finally got serious about it about three or four years ago and started doing it every day, which is how you have to do it. You can't do it once a week or for a week or two and then stop for a week. You just It has to be like exercise, you know. It has to be like every day. And so I committed to it every day, and I really um, – uh, got you know huge benefits you know huge benefits from it really you get to the you, you can get to places that are a lot like when you trip basically you know the kind of ego death experience and so, uh, so uh, do you have any uh, recommended uh, guides or, or to, for people that might be interested in meditation or did you just kind of how, how did you learn or how did you get into it it's I've, I've been doing it so long I don't really remember my dad was um was a meditated as long as I knew him. So it was always kind of around all the books were around and he, he used to go, he was kind of like a Buddhist type guy. And, um, there, there's actually, I don't know if you have a links, if you have links on this, yeah. uh, there's a great three minute animated video that is perfect. And it's super, super easy. Um, I could send you, uh, yeah, yeah, I could send, send you the link to post. So that's what I always give people who are interested because it's just, it's so, it's easy. It's like the easiest thing in the world and the hardest thing in the world at the same time. And you have to just keep doing it and keep doing it and sit there and you don't, it's so boring at first. Oh my God. It's like, <laughs> it's, it's terrible, but you have to just there's sit a, there and stick with it. There's an Alan Watts uh, guided meditation lecture on YouTube too. It's, I've done it a couple of times. It's pretty, it, that, that's pretty oh, yeah? useful. Yeah. 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 And that's it. That's the, oops, here it is shit that's the uh that's the other thing is that you know there there is there's guided meditation someone was just asking me about this the other day here's the the link um there's different types of meditation there's chanting you have to kind of find what works best for you but ultimately what you're doing is shutting down your thoughts and quieting your thoughts to the point where you're just aware of your awareness it's like you you're just being aware of the fact that you are aware. You know, it's like your consciousness is aware of its own consciousness. And so once you and the only way you can do that is to stop all the thoughts. And the only way you could stop all the thoughts is by doing this meditation practice to where you're constantly focus the way I do it, you're just focusing on your breathing. And every time you start thinking about something, you go, Okay, I gotta bring myself back and you start just focusing on your breath coming in and out. That's it, basically. And you do that for 10 to 20 minutes a day every day and you know after a few months it starts to get kind of easy and then uh, then it becomes like a an enjoyable thing to where you're just you can sit there you go to sit down and your mind isn't racing and there's no thoughts and it's like ah what a nice little relief relief from all that because everybody has that you know everyone has that constant chatter in their in their head oh yeah the flow of thoughts uh, sam harris has a good uh it's got a meditation app and a couple of uh, podcasts on meditation that are pretty awesome. Yeah. Yeah, yeah there's a lot of resources, but the one I sent you is just like so easy. It's an ex and it's explained really well. So awesome. I wonder if Sam Harris's internal voice is as slow and articulate as he is. Like, <laughs> kind of just, he sounds he sounds like the voice you want to meditate to. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, kind of, I kind of joke that uh if I ever went to like a Sam Harris lecture or like an Iron and Wine concert, like even though I really appreciate them in the art, I would just fall right asleep. 
Like my body's just trained to like drift off to. Uh, <laughs> but uh, so one last question. So Chet, what is it that's so awesome about the the sound of helicopters hovering overhead that uh, that you appreciate? What do you mean? No, why, why do you say that? I was that? listening to one of your podcasts and you were no, like, I hate "Helicopters it. are overhead. I hate this." Yeah, <laughs> I just it bothers me. I don't. I'm not sure what it is. It's like it just. It's like nails on a chalkboard to me. It's so irritating. It's just so it breaks. I live in a pretty quiet neighborhood, so it's nice and quiet, and I like it that way. And then you hear this buzzing. It's like a it's a fly like buzzing around your head that you can't get rid of. It's like, and it comes over and goes away, and then it comes back, and you don't know how long it's going to keep going. It's just like for some reason it just gets under. It just drives me insane. I hate it. Are either of you guys lucid dreamers? Yeah, you know, uh, yeah, yeah I, I, I do quite had, often actually. <laughs> oh, let's talk about this. let's close out with a little bit of lucid dreaming. So, when did you guys start lucid dreaming, and do you have any uh, tips to, to to get people to to get into it? Uh, I've lucid dreamed since I was a kid, off and on, but a lot more recently. Um, so, a couple of things. The way I discover I'm lucid dreaming is by looking at my hands. If I suspect I'm in a dream. I look at my hands, and if my hands will start just spazzing out, fingers will meld together, they, they look all kinds of weird. And then I become aware that I'm dreaming. Uh, a couple of things that I've learned in lucid dreams is not to tell other people in your dreams that you're dreaming and that they're part of it because they get pissed off at you. <laughs> uh, so the thing that I've learned, other thing I've learned through lucid dreaming is once you realize you're dreaming, the way to, the best thing to do is just to go about your dream. And whenever you run into obstacles, delegate responsibilities to other people. Like if you don't know what to order at the restaurant, ask them what they would order. Uh, if you don't know where to, if you can't make your phone work because that, that never seems to work in a, in a dream, you hand it to someone else and get them to dial the number or get them to text it. Get somebody else to do it. Uh, oh, <laughs> oh, that's awesome. I never, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. That's uh, one time I had a dream, uh, I became lucid and I was going into an elevator and I was going up into this like penthouse. And there was an old lady in the elevator, and she became aware that I was aware, and she started getting mad at me, and I flattened her out and rolled her up and put her in my pocket. <laughs> <laughs> and I went into this room, and there was a couple of guys in suits, and and uh, they were not happy with me for some reason. And they, one of them pulled out a gun, and, and I just became the room. So I disappeared into the room, so they couldn't uh-huh. shoot me. And they, and they were some sort of guard, and they didn't want me to know what I was, where I was, go- what I was doing. You know, they didn't want me to go any further. It seems like people try to talk you out of doing this when you're doing it. Uh-huh. And I remember I, then I went over to the kitchen in this in this little suite, and I saw a plate of oranges. And I thought, it's like, man, I wonder if I could eat those oranges. They taste them. I could almost taste the oranges. Mm. But the the other thing that I've noticed is like when I become lucid in a dream, is I immediately start trying to see how real a dream is. And it's wherever you look, it looks exactly real, but it looks like it does when you're tripping balls, like if you're high on shrooms, mm-hmm. just patterns and things are vibrating. And that's, and, and that's the way it looks when you're lucid in a dream, at least, at least for me. Yeah. Um, I had this dream one time where I walked into this facility and it was like, it was almost like a prison or a school. And there were a lot of people with these black jackets and I happened to be wearing one. And as I was walking through it, there were there were there were all these different rooms that had different sort of things going on. Like one of them had like this car museum and this documentary going on on a, on a screen. And one of, I walked in and there's this guy, these guys being guided into a room, and they were like uh, 80s style rock and rollers, like big hairband. 
And so they and they were be gui- being guided by a guy in a black jacket. And I was like incognito. And it's like as long as I didn't make any attention to myself, nobody paid attention. I just walked everywhere as if I belonged there. And no, and I got led into all these different rooms. And I ended up in this back back rooms where there was like there was like these tables full of pastries. And then in the back behind that, there was another room. It was just like kind of empty, like they had been used for something but had emptied out so it was like boxes and different things and then there was nothing and then as farther i went into there was just nothing in some of these rooms and it felt like i was like walking through my psyche seeing all these things and i was like just going unnoticed somehow through all this but i could see out the windows and i saw out the windows and there was this big wall with like wire on it like I, we were trapped inside of it somehow <laughs> uh, so that was another dream i had <laughs> i've never been able to induce a lucid dream myself i i i think because i haven't been um disciplined enough to practice it's the same thing if you practice if you if you go through the things it'll happen if you do it every night whatever the you know there's one technique of imagining three spots in your room you know like this place where the car keys are and the computer and the uh dresser over here and then you kind of keep remembering those things i think it's it's kind of like that that will help you induce a lucid dream like a meditation stuff as you fall asleep but i've had them since like age 12 to where they're you know they're like out of body experiences that kind of fade in and out of lucid dreams it's really weird but um a lot of times i it happens happens kind of a lot but and i'll float around and i can't control myself and it's and i've after reading some books, um, there's a guy named Robert Monroe wrote a bunch of books on um, back. They used to call it astral traveling back in the 70s, I think, when he wrote the books. And he apparently got so deep into it that he just went to these weird levels, deeper levels to where these little guys would jump on your back the whole time and just be holding on your back the whole time you're walking around or flying around. And um, uh, I, I've reading some of that material i've I've got a couple tips for when you are in that space is um if you find that you can't control yourself which is where where i found myself often where i'm I'm just kind of like flailing in the air floating around you have to go okay i want to fly up or i want you have to think it it's not like your body where your body go you know just does what you tell it to it's like you have to think i want to i want to go that way or i want to go to the right and you'll start doing it it'll just go and then the other thing is um, a lot of times I'd be floating around and I can't see anything. It's like I'm blind. And he said, I remember reading specifically this Robert Monroe book, and he said that he start, he would say clarity now, like in his head, and he'd be able to see. And one of the times I did that, I was like, oh, I remember that. Okay, clarity now. And it's like, I could see. And I don't know if it's because of the suggestion from reading the book or it doesn't really matter, I guess. But so now every time I find myself blind and floating around i i can i say that and it and it i can see all of a sudden um so that's a little tip i guess <laughs> just for anybody uh, watching that has no idea about lucid dreaming or what we're talking about uh yeah uh, not only some of the references we talked about but check out uh, waking life was the uh, is the movie that uh yeah. re- readily accessible and uh yeah yeah a good, uh, entry yeah yeah it's a trip it's it's basically like like Gabe was saying, it's like tripping. It's it's. I think it's it's like a heavy duty trip. Yeah. So uh-huh. I, got, I was talking about the hand reference. If uh, 
Uh, that's another one looking, I can hear as well, looking at your hands, yeah. Yeah, if you start looking at your hands to see if you're dreaming all the time, eventually you're going to do it in a dream, and that's how right. you'll figure it out. Like that's one, right. one time in, I was in real in re, in regular life, you look at your, you get yeah. in the habit of looking at your hands, and then when you you dream, you'll do it, and then you'll. And so one, yeah, dream. example is one time I was leaving a house party, and there was like the police were there. They were they showed up, and everybody's leaving. And I was walk I walked out to the dr- driveway, out to the street. And I was walking down the street to the, to my car, and I could, I saw my shadow from the streetlight onto the onto the pavement. You know, it's kind of long. For whatever reason, I decided to look at my hand, and my hand started flipping out. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, I realized I was dreaming. And then I fell like onto my face with my arm outstretched, and I woke up with <laughs> weighing like. like <laughs> <laughs> I had no idea I was dreaming. It was such an innocuous thing. It was like the, mm-hmm. the, what I was dreaming about. It was just like you would never have thought that that was a dream. But for whatever reason, I looked at my hand. It was a dream, and I woke up. Right. So <laughs> tattooed people could look at your tattoos, and uh, they're all freaky. Yeah. They're like crawling around in their living, and you're like, whoa, ah, I know what's going on. <laughs> But, uh, but awesome. Cool. Well, let's uh, let's wrap this up. This has been a lot of fun. Thanks again. I appreciate it. It's always uh, great, great, great conversations and a depth of uh, of knowledge and wisdom. Um, let's uh, let's get back to some regular, relatively superficial stuff. Uh, what galleries are are you currently showing in, or, or what plans do you guys have for showing your work in the future? How could people buy your shit? And uh, let, let's get a, a you know those links out there. Uh, well, I have a, a uh, list of some of the galleries that I work with on my website at GabeLeonard.com. I've got a sh- uh, an open studio at the Brewery Art Walk coming up on April 6th and 7th. And then I have another show at Lewis Galleries in Simi Valley on the 26th and 27th. And then I go to Denver and I got some shows coming. You know, throughout the year I got other shows coming up too. I'm also doing a Kickstarter launch on April 10th for a series of books I'm putting out. It has several collections of my work and going to start out with the first two books and hopefully stretching it to about five or six more books. Mm. So that'll launch on April 10th. And uh, that's and then I'm going to be live streaming on Twitch here, which I've started doing some of the tests, and that'll be twitch.tv. Game I got to hit art back. I gotta hit and you then, uh, that. Yeah, yeah, we'll talk later. Then all my uh, all my social media, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, is at Gabe Leonard Art. Uh, I got, I'm going to be at Monster Palooza at the Pasadena Convention Center, April 12th to 14th. And, um, I got a booth there selling my junk and, um, trying to make some new stuff for that new exclusive stuff for that. Um, I've got a show in Australia at the Bain Art Gallery and I think it's in July or August. Um, and then I've got something at Copro at the end of the year in the fall, which is kind of not up in the air, but it's not fully, I can't really fully announce what it is yet. But, um, the other thing is the dark art society podcast, which is, if you just, we have a, uh, we're slowly building the community, the dark art community. And, um, if you, you can kind of, we're building, we have a, a beginnings of a website, uh, darkartsociety.com that's being built right now but you can go there and it'll show you all the places you can stream the podcast and how you can be a part of it how to be part of the patreon that's the other thing is we have a patreon that's supporting the podcast and um that is uh patreon.com slash dark art society and i have my own patreon page where i'm doing tutorials and posting everything i'm working on and doing all my time lapses and stuff on there and um both of those you can join for as little as a dollar a month and you can kind of get different 
perks depending on how much you want to pay each month and it's easy to cancel it's easy to pop put it on pause or raise or lower your pledge it's really where kind of all the action is as far as my artwork is going and uh my personal one is patreon.com slash chetzar like one word awesome cheers yeah i love the uh, i love the podcast i've been uh, throwing it on and uh, anybody that's yeah it might be dark art for uh, uh focus but man it's it's pretty accessible and it's, yeah it's, we're trying to just wisdom and well, thank you. Yeah, we're trying to. We're it's it's, you know, it's it's we interview all kinds of artists. You know, it's really more about art, but it's just a way of of adding that little element to it. You know, did you hear Gabe's episode? Yeah, Gabe I did. Yeah, great. yeah. Of Gabe course. was great. The, uh, I've been. I, I probably got through maybe a, a dozen uh, or so. And, oh, uh, cool. Uh, yeah, like I said, it's uh, every every everybody that appreciates art should be should be listening because uh, again, the, the the lessons learned are crossover and. Uh, again, right. just a, a depth of uh, you know, like I said, of character that that the people that you bring on and and, and intelligence to the conversations and um, yeah, yeah, you should hear the, the we just posted one. I don't know when this is going to air, but we posted one today, which is Wednesday. Uh, it's Wednesday, right? Wednesday the thirteenth. Yeah, it's Wednesday today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, we just posted that one with Harley Brown. You got to listen to that one. It's amazing. He's eighty years old. Totally wow. cool dude. He t- takes a break in the middle of the um interview to play piano for us <laughs> so nice. he's like jamming on the piano it's pretty cool i got through the uh, the i was listening to the letters how you were uh, taking questions oh yeah and, yeah uh, that's... i was just about to because like i said just went up uh, today or yesterday so uh, right, right. Oh, cool yeah awesome yeah <clears throat> well thanks, thanks again that was awesome so gabe when are yeah. you gonna uh, get your podcast going or uh, hop on and help uh, help chat i don't know when i get another stick to spin a plate on i guess ah uh, yeah right <laughs> tremendous amounts of work on. huh gabe or sorry uh, what's that huh, chat? uh yeah I, I wouldn't have done it if mike carell didn't do it with me it was kind of like I, I wouldn't have done it myself and and, and um once he left, it was like, okay, I got to figure out how to make this work and still keep it going. And it's, uh, yeah, it's and it's just it's definitely like every every week there's more people listening. It's really yeah. kind of growing, and every time I go to an event, people are talking to me about it. Yeah. So that's really cool. But there's no way I would have started it on my own. No way, you know. So <laughs> as all good things, you'd be insane to do this by yourself. Yeah, it, it just <laughs> you know just kind of turned out that way but i got a guy named brian kilgore who's amazing he does the audio engineering and he's uh-huh. running the um the, the uh, instagram and then there's a guy named jeff bradford who's another member of the the patreon and the, uh-huh. the dark art society he's doing putting the website together so everyone's kind of pitching in you know right. so well if there's anything i could do from here you know you know i'm in new england but uh you know i'm uh, anything computer geek and as you can tell like when i'm listening and i hear you asking questions or talking about things i'm like ooh, maybe uh I could help this way. One thing I think would be intense for you is to um, to do them on stage. You know, I want, at some of these conventions or the uh, right. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you know that's kind of. I think that's what we're thinking about the fall thing at Copro. Yeah, yeah, cool. yeah um, I'll, I'll announce that in the future. Uh, yeah, yeah, settled, but but it's gonna that'll be part of it. Awesome. Yeah. Cool. Cool. And then we'll have Gabe on it. We'll get you're about due to be on again, Gabe. You were on pretty early on. <laughs> you can come on again, I suppose. <laughs> you guys would have to come up with some sort of way to force a rapport. <laughs> yeah, we have such trouble talking to each other. But, uh, cool. We'll have to do it from, from Zello's Pizza. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's not, not even a joke. We should totally do it from Zello. <laughs> 
the reason. It's the reason I will never fully be a vegan. Is Zillow. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> you, are you veggie or? Uh... Yeah, I guess I'm pescatarian. pescatarian. I don't eat fish much, go. but I, you know, I eat a little fish, a little dairy, but not too much. Yeah. I'm, you know. That is technically the healthiest, I think. Yeah, I, that's what I thought, but you know, it's. Who knows? It's, I'm I'm used to it now. Right, that's right. just the way. I am. Well, thanks again. That was a pretty amazing interview pre-coronavirus lockdown. All those dates were a year off. But check out their work and tune back in. Check out the sponsors in the notes sections of this podcast and give us a review if, uh, if you like.